we're doing a little different adventure. We uh, spent sort of the last semester looking at uh, the Old Testament, starting with Genesis 1, kind of walking our way forward into the Second Temple period. Sort of the context, the background against which this series will then play itself at, because as we know, Jesus and Paul in the early church all lived out in the latter days of the Second Temple period of Judaism. And so we sort of pick up this story. The most obvious thing you can say is the one on the screen. Jesus of Nazareth is the founding figure of our faith, so therefore it matters a lot what he said and what he did. And that should be something that we should, should care about. Um, but here's the issue. What do we really know? Do we actually know what he was about, what his ministry was about? Do we actually know what he did? Do we actually know what he taught? Uh, those things are of some uh, measure because as a faith we trace ourselves back to him, back to his actions, back to his teachings. Uh, but what do we really know about that? Um, the answers, of course, come to us from a set of sources. And those sources are found in the New Testament as the four Gospels. Uh, they are the only first century records and documents that we have that refer to Jesus. There's some in the second centuries. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are by far the oldest. Now you may hear some people say every now and then they're referring to other things like the Gospel of Thomas or Q or some stuff like that. No, there's only four sources that actually go back to the first century. If you go to the second century, the third century, you'll pick up some more. But these are by far the oldest. They are universally almost. There's always a few people who do not go along with the crowd. But 99% of the scholars agree. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you want to know anything about Jesus of Nazareth, that's where you go. You may wander off in the Gospel of Thomas. Good luck. I'm not sure what you'll find over there, but it might be an interesting journey. Now, we have always known, this goes back early, early, early into the early church. We've always known that the Gospels are not primarily what we today would know as histories. They're not historical texts in the sense that we use the term history. They are also not what we would today call biographies. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not biographies of Jesus. They are biographies to some degree in the ancient world's definition, which is entirely different from ours. Um, they deal with historical issues, but that's not primarily what they're about. They are, uh, by definition, something different. They were never meant to be these other things. Uh, they make no claim to objectivity. Let's look at two examples. Gospel of Mark, universally acknowledged to be the oldest gospel, the first one ever written. When Mark writes the Gospel of Mark, he is writing something the world has never seen. Okay, this is it. This is the first. He creates a genre. And this is what he says in verse 1. The beginning of the Engalion, the good news, the word literally means the gospel, it's not history, it's not biography, it's gospel about Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, the Son of God. Now, I would submit to you that Mark's right up front telling you he's not objective. He has an agenda. His agenda is he wants you to believe. And he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Puts it right out there. John's even more interesting. And John, uh, John sort of wastes at the end, and he sort of gives you this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, but I'm not going to stick them in this book. 
John, come on, I'd love to know what else you knew that we don't know. Uh, nah, that's not what he wants to do. Here's what he wants to do. I've written these because I have an agenda. And here's the agenda. That you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew and John are the two most Jewish Gospels. Mark close behind Luke, Gentile. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That through believing... You might have life in his name. I have to keep walking this way until this works. Okay. Uh, in other words, again, is, there, is that claiming to be objective? Absolutely not. He has an agenda. He does not want you to be dispassionate. He does not want to be objective in his presentation. He's carefully crafted the gospel because he wants you to respond in a particular way. So he's put stuff in there in a, in a particular kind of way. The Gospels are also limited in what they present. You could make a very long laundry list of what is not in the Gospels, uh, including most of the things that you and I probably like to know. Uh, they tend to emphasize certain things. They leave out a lot. Let's look at a few things. For example, have you ever wondered what Jesus' childhood was like? We got one little snapshot from Luke of a sort of an, an, um, an interesting 12-year-old. It's a classic 12-year-old story, you know. He gets lost, blames his parents, um, <laughs> the whole nine yards. What's the rest of that like? Now, in the second century, people want to fill in the blanks. So we have the proto the, the infancy story of James, and we get the infancy story of Thomas. They're, they're pure fantasy, but they're great. Imagine Jesus as an impetuous three-year-old with divine power. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, uh, kills off his playmates, you know, things like that. It's actually in there, by the way. Uh, what happened to Joseph? Yeah, by the time the ministry of Jesus starts, Joseph is nowhere to be found. You know, and you just kind of wonder about that. Now, there is one passage in John that indicates that Joseph's life may have overlapped with Jesus's ministry just a little bit. But it's one of those questions. What was he doing until 30? You know, that, that, yeah, carpenter, uh, the word tecton actually means construction. By the way, the largest construction site of the ancient world at that time was three miles from his house up at Sepphoris. So he could have been up there. That's pure conjecture. But his father, Joseph, is a tecton. Jesus is a tecton, from which we get the word technology, basically working with your hands, construction. So, you know, it's interesting. How many of Jesus' metaphors are construction metaphors? Build your house on rock, not on sand. So there may be something to that. What did he look like? Not one word in any gospel. We have no idea what it looks like, which gives artists, I love this, gives artists a totally free hand. You know, you can just paint him any way you want to. Um, was he married? Um, a lot of stuff uh, about a decade ago about Jesus as being married to Mary Magdalene and all that. The Bible never says that Jesus was not married. It would have been somewhat unusual for a rabbi to not be married, but it was not without precedent. We know, for example, that all the men who were out at Qumran and the Dead Sea, they were all celibate and single. So, could be. Bible doesn't care, you know. So, again, people can just fill in all the blanks. Another issue that, that really complicates things, if we're trying to get back and understand who Jesus was, what he said, what he did, and what all this stuff was about. Um, we have four distinct Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you, you know enough, is Mark, Matthew? No. They're way different. 
way different. In some ways, the two are actually polar opposites. Uh, Mark will say that Jesus said that he did away with the law. Matthew will say that Jesus said not one jot or tittle of the law will ever be done away with. Okay, what do you do with that? They present four distinctly different portraits of Jesus. And, and that's probably one of the ways you can really think of gospel writers. They're a lot like painters. They have a subject, but the canvas is interpreting. They're choosing the colors. They're choosing how to portray. They're choosing what to put there, what not to put there. So they do come out different. Uh, they're interpreting that subject. Four gospels give multiple versions, sometimes of the same events. You know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the sin optic gospels, the one-eye gospels. That's because a lot of the times those three gospels have the same story parallel, uh, but different. In Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's the Sermon on the Plain. In uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleans the, the, table, the temple the last week of his life. In John, he cleans it the first year of his ministry. Things like that. You just kind of go, you know, okay. At times, they're just wildly divergent. Uh, which raises some interesting questions. Do we know? Do we know if one is more accurate than the other? Does one get us closer to the other? How do you, can you get behind the canvas and the portraits to actually get back to the figure and who he was, what he was doing? How do we know about that? Uh, what he actually did, the things that he actually said, of course, is, which is what this class is all about. Uh, can we know? And the other, the other interesting question, this is an interesting question that goes back to the second century. Does it matter? Does it matter whether or not we know what Jesus actually did? Does history matter? And you're going to have people who <coughs> fall on both sides of that issue. We'll look at that some more. So over the years, scholars have toyed with this and have tried to look at the different Gospels and tried to see, you know, how can we get behind the portraits? How can we uncover who Jesus was, what he did? Uh, this is known in the scholarly circles as the quest for the historical Jesus. Another term is the, hist uh, the Jesus of history. Same thing, but the idea here is, is very simple, uh, that this is in contrast to the Christ of faith. The Christ of faith is Christ interpreted through the eyes of faith. Can you get behind that? Clearly, Mark tells you, John tells you, Matthew and Luke don't tell you, but believe me, they're doing it too. They have an agenda. Can you get behind the agenda to actually see what's going on? Get behind those four portraits to the actual person. Um, now, we are currently today in the third quest, and this is the one that's really productive. Uh, it is amazing. We have, there's a, in the last 10 or 15 years, there's nothing short of an absolute revolution in terms of what we know, which is really, again, what this class is about. Um, and also, some challenge the whole thing. Some very respected scholars say that we shouldn't even be doing this kind of thing. They argue that the quest is really uh, misguided because really all we need to find is the real Jesus. Okay, we got the historical Jesus, we got the Christ of faith, and now we got the real Jesus. Well, who is the real Jesus, you know? Uh, so the question is here is, is, can we get behind all this stuff? So, because it can be confusing, I want to take just one week to talk about the quest. Where we've come, where we are, how do we know what we know, and then next week we'll start laying out what we know. Fair enough? Okay. By the way, it's, it's not a boring story. Uh, <laughs> lots of scholarly ink and a little bit of blood spilt along the way. 
So our goal is to understand who Jesus is, what he taught, what he did to the best of our ability, and that's where we're headed. Now, let's be honest. Back in the old days of the early church, they didn't really worry about this kind of stuff. Because in the early centuries, they really weren't interested in the historical Jesus. Uh, to be perfectly honest, all they're interested in is the Jesus that they would worship. Uh, if you would ask the average Joe Blow in the first century, second century Roman Empire, they would have probably said, well, I just assumed that everything there that's there is historical, you know, and very uncritical of that. Now, early church leaders, though, some of the great saints of the early church were very, very aware that it was not that simple. They were very, very aware that there's inconsistencies, there is discrepancies, there's even, ooh, that C word, contradictions, you know. You never want that in your Bible, okay, uh, between the four gospel accounts. I mean, people read these things. They weren't dummies back then. Now, even more importantly for us, the enemies of the church also noticed the discrepancies. And if you're an enemy of the church, could you use the discrepancies as ammunition? Which is exactly what happened. Uh, they became a way of attacking the Christian faith. Um, one of the early critiques, and this is one by a guy named Kelsus, and you know, the, the guy you got to fear is not the ignorant bumpkin. The guy you got to fear is the guy who actually is talented and intelligent and actually reads your literature. And he knows your stuff. He may know your stuff better than you do. And then he comes at you. Kelsus is one of those people. Have you all ever been to um, Ephesus? Down at the end down there, the library of Kelsus? Different Kelsus, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's a fourth century Kelsus. So early critique was that, here's was the basic argument. You stupid Christians, you can't even get your own story right. If you could get your story right, you just have one story. But you got four different stories, and they're four different stories. So you guys are just nuts. Don't need to, and they literally, he made that argument, and it hurt. The result was that Christian leaders began to have to defend the faith. And this is about the year 100-120. This is, this is pretty early. Figure the last gospel is written about the year 100-120. So real quick, this becomes an issue. Uh, you got to account for the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have differences and the differences at points are glaring. So how do you handle that? So within a couple of generations, uh, some Christian leaders began to solve the problem. One of the ways they came up with, I think, is genius. Let's just do away with three and go with one. <laughs> Works, doesn't it? You know, you get rid of, the, you know, you just go with one. So you got this guy that you generally just call Marcion, but there was actually more than one Marcion. This is the famous Marcion of Sinope. He decided... He was an apostle of Paul. He didn't like the Old Testament. He didn't like the Old Testament God. Uh, he thought that Paul had said that with Christ, all that was done away with. So he likes that. Of the four Gospels, he thought, because there was an early church tradition, that Luke was Paul's gospel. You know, Luke traveled with Paul on his journeys. And therefore, so he liked Luke. Now, he had a problem with Luke. Luke insisted in quoting Old Testament scripture. So what you do is you get your pinking shears out and you just clip everything that's in the Old Testament out of Luke, which is about half the gospel. And what do you have left? You have Paul's gospel. And so that's literally what he did. Uh, he pared it down and he went with that. And he also added Paul's letters. By the way, Marcion is the first person to create a New Testament canon. This is before the church has done it, which is kind of forces the church to do the same thing. At the same time, there's this guy named Tatian, the Assyrian, he does what is called the first harmony of the Gospels. So he basically takes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
And what he wants is he wants one consistent, coherent narrative. So as he comes down, anytime you've got the same story in two or three or four places, what do you do? Pick one. Yeah, <laughs> go with it. So he wove what's what we call the harmony of the Gospels. One consistent story, first to last. It's got some of Mark, some of Matthew, some of Luke, some of John. Uh, the advantage is it's got all this richness. The interesting thing is this was the gospel in Syria, in the Eastern Church, until the Muslims took it out in the 7th century. It was that popular. People loved it. And you can today still buy harmonies of the gospel, uh, sometimes called gospel parallels. Mainstream Christianity took a different tact. Uh, it's an interesting tact. What it basically said is, we're going to keep four in spite of the fact that it creates some problems for us. We could go with one, and it would eliminate some problems, but it's like tossing the, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. We would lose so much. So we're going to keep four. And you got people like Aeneas of Lyon. Uh, he was uh, a bishop in Lyon, what is now France. Uh, he later was martyred, great leader of the early church. Uh, I would call him a pit bull of the second century. So here was his answer to the enemies of the church. There's four gospels, only four. Some of you guys have been having five, six, seven, eight. We won't have that. We're not having less than four. We're not having more than four. Neither more nor less. Four, like the four points of the compass. Four, like the chief directions of the wind. God always works in fours, right? How many gospels do you think there should be? It could be five. Five makes no sense. Three, three makes no sense. Four, we've got to have four. And so he went with that. These four gospels are in actual fact a single gospel. <laughs> he got you, didn't he? You may think there's a, a contradictions. You know, a fourfold gospel inspired by the one spirit. So he's arguing with that. Uh, another approach, which is different, is to argue that the differences are intentional. God put the differences there for you. So you could be spiritually blessed by that. Uh, and that's an interesting argument. Remember St. Augustine? Augustine is a city in Florida. Augustine is the saint, as my professor would say. One of his writings is called The Harmony of the Evangelist, and he says this, Divine Providence intentionally created the variations of the Gospels. Now, in a little bit, about five minutes, you'll get the second half of the quote. Uh, he believed that if you read the Gospels at a literal level, at a historical level, of course they're going to contradict each other. But what that really meant is that that's a message to you. If you read it and contra contradicts itself, obviously you're reading it wrong. Don't read it literal. Don't read it historical because it makes no sense at historical literal. So what are you going to do? Well, you need to read them in a different way. It's an invitation to go beyond the, the literal, to go beyond the historical, to ascend to the higher level of spiritual truth. He argues for something called allegorical interpretation. It has nothing to do with history. It has nothing to do with fact. It has nothing to do with being literal. All of these stories are merely ways of pulling you into a deeper level of conversation. Uh, so the literal, the historical, whether or not it happened, he didn't care. And he didn't think it was important. Uh, what was important is that as you read these stories, they pulled you into thinking about things of God things about what God's called us to be and things like that. He thought for him, that's, that's what was important. Uh, for those who insisted on going to the literal level, this would be particularly the enemies of the church. For those who insisted on pointing out the contradictions, 
Uh, Augustine had, I think, the perfect answer. So let's go back to his earlier quote. Divine providence intentionally created these variations in the Gospels, and for those who find fault in them, My Baptist mother would love that. <laughs> so, Augustine's view, because this is important. Augustine's view dominates the Western church for the next thousand years, okay? Until the 1700s, until the 18th century. This becomes the dominant view in the Western church. The Gospels are not historical texts. They are not to be interpreted literally. They are invitations to spiritual truth. And until the 1700s, that stands. So for a thousand years, people who read the Gospels, at least the people, you know, and again, few could read, but the people who actually read them, study them, are not looking for history. They're not looking for facts. They're not looking for some of the things you and I might want to look at. They're really looking at what is it, you know, what kind of theological truths does it come. Then comes the Enlightenment. Starts in the 1700s, uh, the 18th century. Uh, the Enlightenment values reason. They value science. They value historical verification. Uh, the task was to be a, a reasonable Christianity. Uh, they felt that it was important to get behind the dogma of the church. Now remember, what you're coming out of is the Middle Ages, okay? And what did the church do in the Middle Ages? Pull layer after layer of stuff on there. You couldn't find Jesus in there if you tried, you know, because it was just all this stuff that was in there. And that kind of bothered. They wanted to get behind that. Uh, to the Christ of faith, uh, behind the Christ of faith, to who Jesus actually was. Now, let's be real clear. The Enlightenment valued Jesus, unlike the 21st century, uh, where it's a little bit different. Uh, they just didn't trust what the church had done to Jesus. And that's very important to understand. They thought that Jesus was important, but they wanted to get back to him, not to the filters that had come up along the way. So, for about 200 years, what this does is a bunch of people out of the Enlightenment began to do what are called lives of Christ. Uh, they reflect the spirit of the age. For one thing, they took out the miraculous. Uh, the Enlightenment did not believe in miracles. Therefore, you just snipped it right out. Uh, it didn't fit the modern scientific worldview. You ever have a guy named David Strauss? Uh, one of the great early, early scholars of this, and he's, he's an Enlightenment guy. Here's a famous quote from him. So he, says, he basically says, supernatural events do not occur. Period. You know. Now, do you remember a guy, uh, so they take out the healing, they take out the miracles, they take out the resurrection. Jesus is a teacher of universal moral truths, the Sermon on the Mount. You, do you remember uh, Thomas Jefferson Bible? What did he take out? He literally took scissors to a Bible. And he pasted his own Bible, the Jefferson Bible. What did he take out? Miracles. Resurrection. Healings. Exorcisms. What did he leave? Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Teachings. He was an Enlightenment figure. And what, what he was concerned about is he wanted Jesus to be the purveyor of, of, of rational, moral, ethical teaching. And so that's what the Jefferson Bible, which, by the way, still exists. Um, as a result, of course, the Jesus story gets gutted. You take out all the miraculous, you take out the resurrection, you take out the healing miracles, you take out the exorcisms, you've taken out about 80% of the gospel. And you've, you just, you've gutted it. For the 19th century, Jesus is not a savior. He's not even a Jew. 19th century, anti-Semitism is running pretty darn high, okay? And most of the scholarship is going on in 
Europe, and Germany. And Hitler did not come out of a vacuum, okay? So they don't think of him that. They want him to be sort of a universal philosopher. Uh, all that is matters is can Jesus teach us ethical teachings, uh, universal moral truths. Until everything changes in 1906 with the publication of one book. It happens occasionally. There's a book of such profound significance or a speech of such profound significance that the entire scholarly world just stops and turns. This is it. Uh, this was a guy named Albert Schweitzer. Ever heard of him? Yeah. I love it. He writes a book, he retires, and goes in the mission field. You know, he also plays piano. Uh, but he uh, took the time to read all of the lives of Christ that had been written in the last two centuries. All of them. And he had some observations. He called the book The Quest of the Historical Jesus. His conclusion was that each life of Christ only produced what the writer wanted to see. A liberal finds a what kind of Jesus? Liberal. A conservative finds a what kind of Jesus? A conservative Jesus. And they, what they did is they became like mirrors. They said much more about the person. People projected their personal biases into the portraits of Jesus. Uh, this is Albert Schweitzer from the book. There is no historical text which so reveals the man or woman's true self than the writing of a life of Jesus. <laughs> you want a psychological profile of a guy, have him write a life of Jesus. He'll just tell you about himself. Uh, each individual creates him in accordance with his own character. Now that's, that's a damning indictment of a whole genre of literature. Uh, so instead of getting behind the four Gospels of Jesus to the one who inspired it, all that we do is quite contrary. We begin to spin off more portraits. Now instead of having four Gospels, we got 342, you know, or some number like that. So it didn't help at all. Schweitzer went further, and this is the one that is devastating. He says that the task of recovering Jesus that lay behind the various Gospel accounts, number one, is doomed to failure. Uh, it can't be done. Uh, we can only get back as far as the Jesus that was proclaimed by the church in the Gospels, the Christ of faith. If he had stopped there, we'd have been fine. Uh, more importantly, he concluded that the Jesus of history is not even important. Remind you of somebody who lived a thousand years earlier? Augustine? It's basically the same argument. All that is important for faith is the Christ of faith. History is irrelevant. Here is the famous conclusion, last paragraph of that book. The truth is, it is not Jesus as historically known who is significant for our time, but Jesus as spiritually arisen within. What is important is not the historical Jesus, but the spirit which goes forth from him. Publishes the book, retires, goes into the mission field. Uh, now, in essence, Schweitzer is agreeing with Augustine. Historical fact, irrelevant, shouldn't even bother with that. Doesn't matter to our faith. Uh, his work is so compelling I mean, he really did read all of them. And when people read his analysis, they realized he's right. For the next 50 years, all historical Jesus research in the world ceases. Now, that's impact, okay? That is impact. Um, all that's going to matter is the Jesus of history, or the, uh, the Christ of faith, not the Jesus of history. This is known as the era of the no quest.
uh, from 1906 until 1964. Uh, there literally out there is no interest in the historical Jesus. Uh, and we have the, the, the giants of this era. Now, you have to understand, the giants of this era, there's two of them. Boltmann, you ever heard of him? Karl Barth, ever heard of him? Boltmann, the arch-liberal. Barth, the arch-conservative. They could agree on nothing except one thing. Uh, this is, gets really interesting. Um, the historical was not only unobtainable, it's important. So this go with Bultmann first, because he's the one who really sort of ruled the day. For Bultmann, knowledge of the historical Jesus was irrelevant. Uh, his famous book is called Jesus and the Word. He says this, I think that we can know almost nothing concerning the life and the personality of Jesus. He says you just can't get behind the Gospels. You just can't go there. He goes further to say, doesn't matter. We don't need the Jesus of history. It's irrelevant to us. What we want is the eternal spiritual truth. Um, it's illegitimate because if you look, and this is, this is his argument, and it's still, it's still is compelling to some people. Um, the reason that we don't want to ground something historically is that is simply worldly proof. And if you live by faith, do you need worldly proof? And that argument was compelling for a lot of people. Karl Barth, sitting on the opposite end, agrees with nothing that Boltmann ever said in his life except this one thing. There is nothing in history that can provide the basis of faith. So with those two giants out there, the, the, the endeavor was pretty much dead. Until 1964, and this guy, Ernst Casemann, happens to give a lecture. Again, it's like the publication of the book in 1909. This lecture changes everything. Um, he launches what is called the New Quest, or what is sometimes called the Second Quest. Uh, Caseman's point, very, very simple. I find it compelling. It is the Gospels themselves that draw us to the historical. Because what do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do? Do they place Jesus in history? Augustus, Quirinius, Herod. If you just read the Gospels, even though they're not histories in the sense that we use the term, the story is placed in the context of a specific history of a specific time. And these events play themselves out there. Um, because of this, he said, Christians cannot and should not ever cut themselves off from the historical roots because if you have a faith that's not grounded in history somewhere, what do you have? Well, it's not the faith of the New Testament. Because the faith in the New Testament is firmly grounded in history. More importantly, we need to allow Jesus to be who he was, not just what we want him to be. And if you cut yourself off from anything historical, and you're just going to let spiritual truth come out, you can get anything out of there. Okay? And the question is, is there any limits? Are we, are we grounded anywhere? And so that was his point. Uh, it takes historical knowledge. Now, his speech was so compelling that across the United States and Europe and around the world, he launched a generation of scholars that said, by golly, he's right. We need to go back and look and see if we can come up with something. Uh, so the goal of the second quest is to establish as far as possible what Jesus said, what he taught. Um, the focus is purely textual. That's important. All they're looking at is the text. There's a lot of stuff that they're not looking at. They want to get behind the text to Jesus. Um, they do not, interestingly, use any archaeology. 
don't consult it. They're just focused on the text. They don't use any historical context. They don't want to know anything about Second Temple Judaism. They don't want to know anything about the Roman Empire. They don't want to know anything about Hellenism, any of that stuff. You know, for the, just looking at the text, uh, and they want to s uh, or seek to, to put Jesus in any kind of context like that. They did just the opposite. Now they have several criteria. One of them is the criterion of multiple attestation, which you probably heard of, which means if if there's a story of Jesus, and it appears more than one place, it probably means it's more likely to be Jesus than one you just find one place, stuff like that. The one that's a corker is called double dissimilarity. And this is the one that they run with, and this is the one that ultimately leads to their failure and destroys them. They sought to find a Jesus who is distinct from Judaism and distinct from Christianity. That's worth just saying a word about. They're going to remove or dis dismiss anything that's Jewish. Why? It's not Jesus. You know, if, it, if, it's, if it's something that's of the Judaism, and we want to find Jesus, we don't want Judaism, we want Jesus. So let's take all the Judaism stuff, and make sense? Take it off the table. Doesn't make sense if you know what you, but they did. They took it off the table. <laughs> Anything that reflects faith in Jesus. Anything that reflected faith in Jesus was obviously not Jesus, it was faith in Jesus. So let's take any connection with later Christianity off the table, and let's take anything Jewish off the table. What do you think you would have left? Zero. Got it. The second quest. Uh, now, the second quest, like the first, is skeptical of miracles. It's skeptical of healing. Uh, the fourth gospel is just ruled out. They're not even going to look there. By the way, fourth gospel is now acknowledged to be the most exciting source for historical Jesus today. Uh, and in some very important ways. It had been known early in the second century. One early church father said, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and all still the same story. John's kind of over here, kind of weird. So that means Matthew, Mark, Luke told the historical stuff. And what did John tell? He told the spiritual gospel. So anything spiritual, of course, is suspect. So it went out. So they didn't, they just tossed John. What they went with was Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And can we dig below Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Can we find something there? Uh, they thought, they saw it just like the first quest. A modern Jesus, a relevant Jesus, a teacher of universal truths. They particularly weren't particularly interested in anything miraculous. Have you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? The Jesus Seminar is the crown jewel and the tombstone of the second quest. Okay. Uh, so we want to look at this for just a second. The, the book, the five gospels, sort of summarize what these guys did over about a 20-year period. Uh, this is a quote from their book. We are having increasing difficulty these days accepting the biblical account in anything like a literal sense. Okay, yeah, we can go with that. Uh, what we need is a new fiction. Ooh, that's interesting language. Uh, a new narrative Jesus. Okay, we might look at that. A new gospel, if you will. I love it. That places Jesus differently in the grand scheme. Okay, with some reservations, we might go there. Our goal is to liberate the real Jesus. Uh, by then, they mean the, the Jesus they get back to. From the Christ of the creeds, okay. The Jesus of the gospels, okay. The mistake called Christianity. There is the agenda, okay. So they want to strip everything remotely out, you know. They have this famous color code. We think it went back to Jesus strongly. It's in red. If we think maybe it's in pink, we think, I don't think so. Gray or uh, no way. Look what they came up with with the Lord's Prayer. You can't tell the pink there, but the only thing that they think Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer is our Father. 
And basically, they don't find Jesus in the New Testament whatsoever. They use the criterion of double dissimilarity. We're going to dump all the Jewish stuff. We're going to dump all the Christian stuff. We're going to see what's left. Not much. Uh, they found the historical Jesus and then in some interesting places. A couple of scholars in particular said, well, you know, there's that second century gospel, Thomas. We find Jesus there. And we find Jesus in a hypothetical document, Q. You take the four first century sources and you dismiss them and you go with a second century source and a hypothetical source. Are you surprised that most of the scholars in the world did not follow their lead? Okay, little lemmings just went right off the edge, you know. Uh, the result is a Jesus who could be neither explained in terms of the Judaism he came from, nor could he explain the faith that came from him, which said right up front that this was a doomed uh, deal. So it's doomed almost as soon as it began. Not surprisingly, there were some people out there. This is, a, any of y'all know uh, Luke Timothy Johnson? Well-known Ro Roman Catholic author. By the way, by real Jesus, he means exactly the opposite of what the Jesus Seminar meant. Uh, what he basically said is, he agreed with Augustine, he agreed with Bultmann, he agreed with Bart, that the whole project is just a mess. And he did that primarily because he was critiquing the Jesus Seminar. He said, listen, if that's all you guys can come up with, uh, we don't even need to go there. That's not helpful at all. Um, now, here's the interesting thing. At the exact moment when the Jesus Seminar is publishing its stuff, which is to say we can't find Jesus, and another group like Luke Timothy Johnson is saying, give it up, guys, there's no point. This is just nuts. We're having remarkable breakthroughs in archaeology and historical investigation. Uh, these things give rise to the third quest, which is the one that we're in right now. Uh, you ever heard of this guy, N.T. Wright? He coined the phrase, the third quest, in 1992. Uh, second and third quests run over, uh, overlap each other. Essentially, except for maybe four scholars in the world, the second quest is dead and gone. There's some people didn't get the email yet, so they're still applying <laughs> that. But essentially, where the action is, is in the third quest, which is what we'll be dealing with here. Uh, Unlike early writer, early quest, the third quest focuses on what we can know about Jesus. I love this. Remember, the, the criterion was double dissimilarity. The new criteria is double similarity. How can Jesus be explained in terms of the faith he came from and the world he came from? And how can Jesus, uh, how can the, the faith that came from him be explained in terms of him? Exact opposite. Connect the dots. See what happens. Jesus is a first century Palestinian Jew. He lives in the last decades of the Second Temple period. He's under Roman domination. Ladies and gentlemen, that is his historical context. And that's what we've got to work with. And so that's what we're going to work with in this series. The third quest rereads the sources, the Gospels. They do it in light of the latest archaeological historical discoveries. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls stand out. They're not alone. There's a lot of, lot of stuff that we'll look at that's come out. Uh, they place Jesus back in his original historical social context. The result is absolutely earth-shaking. Uh, what's coming out of this is just is, is revolutionary. A wealth of insights, a wealth of discoveries. This is Paul Winter, highly respected New Testament scholar. The last decade is seen, by the way, this is about 10 years old, so he's actually going back to about in the 1990s, probably the decade of the 90s. The last decade has seen an amazing transformation. Now the Jesus of history is more accessible than ever. At every turn, we have found a clearer and clearer picture emerging of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the major author of this book. 
the research of the last generation has permanently altered the picture of Jesus that prevailed throughout much of Christian history. Now remember the picture in most of Christian history is history doesn't matter. All that matters is the theology, okay? The old view had little to say, that the predominant view of, of Jesus had little to say regarding his Jewishness because they didn't even address it. They didn't deal with it. Uh, since the Dead Sea Scrolls come out, especially the second group in the 1990s, that's now front and center. Uh, his proclamation of the kingdom of God. Remember what they were interested in? Jesus is a moral, ethical teacher. I'll tell you this flat out because we're going to do the Sermon on the Mount this summer. Jesus didn't teach ethics. Sorry. What did he proclaim, you know? The kingdom of God, which has ethics in it. But he proclaimed the kingdom of God. To deal with ethics without ever addressing the issue of the kingdom of God is nuts. But people did that for a long time. His reputation as an exorcist and miracle worker. If you're just simply saying, ah, we don't believe in miracles, therefore we're just going to dismiss all the material. No, you can't go there. The material is there. You've got to deal with it, and you've got to make peace with it in some way. His provocative prophetic acts. Nobody was dealing with stuff like he chose 12 disciples. Not 11, not 13. He walked, he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in a donkey, fulfilling about half a dozen prophecies. He goes into the temple. He all these things he does symbolically. Jesus is, like any prophet, Jesus is huge in the symbolic acts. Okay, we haven't addressed those. His approach to the marginalized in society. That came out in Barbara's prayer earlier. That's huge. It's not just huge in Luke. It's huge across the board. Yet nobody was addressing these kinds of things. Today we can account for all of these because we place Jesus back in his historical context. E.P. Sanders, he's, one of the, he's probably the grandfather of this group. He's dead now for a, for a couple of years. The dominant view today is that we can know pretty well what Jesus was out to accomplish, that we can know a lot about what he said, never mind the color code. He's, you know, he thinks a lot more is red. And that those two things make sense, how? Within the world of first century Judaism. And this has now become the standard view out there, okay? If you go take a class, this is what you'll get. The emerging consensus is it is possible to reconstruct Jesus' life history, his teachings, his actions, the events of his life, and to understand them better than we have in any generation previous to this. All based not on Thomas, and not on Q, but on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels themselves. So, what are we going to do for the next five months? <laughs> I want to bring a pickup, uh, a dump truck, and just dump on you <laughs> what has come out the last 20 years. You know, soup to nuts, as my mother used to say. What do we think we know about that? Uh, and we're going to be using all four Gospels. Next week, we're going to begin not with Jesus because no gospel begins with Jesus. Remember who they begin with? John the Baptist. And the best guess today is that Jesus started as a disciple of John within his movement. And then when John is eliminated, the Jesus movement springs from that. So to understand the Jesus movement, we have to understand John and what he's doing out there on the river, on the far side in Perea, what is this baptism stuff? What's he trying to say? What is he trying to accomplish? Because Jesus is going to bring himself right down to the river 
and he's going to submit to John's baptism. Basically saying, John, I agree with you. And then according to the Gospel of John, Jesus then spends the next two years with John before he goes to Galilee. And we'll actually look at that. So I think we're in for quite a ride. And the other thing you need to know, when John the Baptist walks out on the stage, he is acknowledged to be the first prophet in the land of Israel in 500 years. Do you think that got people's attention? Prophecy is an end. Prophecy is gone. Prophecy is far in the distance. Someday God will send a prophet. Someday God will send someone like Elijah. And then what does John show up dressed as? At the exact spot where tradition said John would return. I mean, Elijah would return. So next.